My name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you are worshiping with us today. Before we jump into God's Word together, I have a quick announcement. Um, tomorrow morning at 10.30 is a celebration of life service for Gretchen Keel. Um, that service and the lunch following will all happen in this room. Uh, so we'll be sitting at tables. It's the family just wanted us to sit around face-to-face and share stories and memories and have that be part of the service. And so... Um, we could use some help if you are available to hang out for a few minutes after the service this morning uh, to move the chairs and help us set up tables. Uh, that'd be really helpful. And then her service is tomorrow morning at 1030 and the lunch is following that and will all be served here. So I'd encourage you to come uh, to come for that. I think that's the only announcement I have. Uh, if you'll find in your Bible, First Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2, we are uh, beginning a sermon series through the letter of First Peter. Uh, the series is called Living as Exiles, and, and this is kind of the, the thought behind setting up the series this morning. Um, I don't know, any, any of you ever get on like Ancestry.com or look up your family's history? Colette does, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've never really done that before, but a few weeks ago, my boys were asking me about the history of the Fuquay family, and so we just started doing some searching. By the way, Ancestry.com is really expensive, uh, but <coughs> so we didn't pay for that, but anyway, we just started doing some searching and, and different uh, history, family history, and one of the interesting things that we found out about the Fuquay family history is that one of our ancestors, Galba Fuquay, died at the age of 16 fighting in the Alamo. So uh, he died two days short of his 17th birthday. But he was one of the few hundred soldiers that were in the Alamo and facing off against the thousands of the Mexican army and and holding them off while the Texan army was uh, formed and rallied and called to action. And and so it's kind of an interesting story. And then, of course, my kids were like, well, what's the Alamo? And so we start talking about that whole historical event. And and it's it's an underdog story. And we love underdog stories. Maybe one that's a little closer to home. Miracle on Ice. Anybody heard of that? I I figured in Wisconsin with the hockey, you guys would be a lot more like, Miracle on Ice. Oh, yeah. Right? This is a true story of the 1980s men's hockey team, American men's hockey team that against all odds beat the Russian hockey team for the, in the Olympics, you know, and um, and so that's, that's, a great, that's a great story. There's a great movie uh, with Kurt Russell uh, kind of telling that story. It's a true story. It's an underdog story. We love underdog stories. Um, the unlikely hero, right? Well, the, the Christian story is an underdog story. Christianity began in Acts chapter 2 with 120 disciples of Jesus, and these were not 120 of the most powerful wealthy, influential people in society. These were everyday, normal, very forgettable people. Uh, People that didn't have a lot of clout or influence, right? And and yet, these 120 people who were some of the least likely people to change the world did just that. 2,000 years later, 2 billion people on planet Earth are following Christ. And so, it's an underdog story. And the letter of 1 Peter was written to a bunch of underdogs in the first century. Christians uh, living in the first century, the, the, the recipients of Peter's first letter, they were not highly influential. They were not powerful. There was not a whole lot of them. 
They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and Peter is writing his letter to them. And one of the main themes that Peter is writing about is this kind of the question of the whole series is, how do we live as Christians in a non-Christian society? How do we follow Jesus in a culture that rejects the way of Jesus? How are Christians supposed to live Christianly when the society around us is not Christian? And and that's exactly where the Christians in the first century found themselves. They were not living in a Christian society. They were living in a non-Christian society. Now, the letter of 1 Peter was written um, just before uh, the, the state of Rome began to persecute the church. So a few years after this letter was written, the Emperor Nero outlawed Christianity and the the Roman Empire, the state, began to actively persecute the church. But that wasn't the case yet when 1 Peter was written. They were experiencing uh, what we might call soft persecution. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, suffice it to say, these were Christians who were living in a non-Christian society. And Peter wrote this letter, at, at least in part, one of the big themes is to teach them how do we live as Christians in a society that rejects Jesus. And in order to understand and answer that question, we have to start where Peter started. By asking the questions, who are we and why are we here? Who are we and why are we here? Uh, Somebody famous said, and I I can't remember where this quote came from. I've heard it several times. I just heard it again recently on the the World News uh, podcast. But somebody famous said, you can't understand what something is supposed to do until you understand what it is and what it's for. So we can't understand what we're supposed to do as Christians until we understand who we are and why we're here. And so those are the two questions for us this morning as we read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the introduction to the letter of 1 Peter. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In these two verses, Peter answers the question, who are we and why are we here? And the first answer that he gives is, who are we? We are elect exiles. That's who we are. We are the, the chosen people of God who God has called to be strangers in our own land. In verse 1, Peter says, I'm writing to those who are elect exiles. Why does he call them exiles? They weren't literal exiles. It's not like they were, they were from Spain or, or northern Africa and had been kicked out of their home country and now they were living in uh, the Middle Eastern area and so they were exiled. No, that, that's not true. They were scattered all across the Roman Empire, but they were living in their native land, in their homeland. So they weren't literal exiles, they were social exiles. The, the, the state had not yet begun to persecute Christianity, but the society around them had. They were facing what Bible scholars call soft persecution. They were facing social exclusion and ridicule. They had no cultural clout. They did not hold positions of power or authority in society. They were not the social influencers of their day. They weren't the famous athletes and the famous artists and the famous politicians. They weren't the movers and shakers of society. They were scorned by family members 
neighbors, and co-workers. They were openly mocked for their faith in Jesus. And being a Christian was associated with being an idiot, being a fanatic, or being a bigot. That's the soft persecution. They were citizens of heaven first. Their primary loyalty and citizenship had transferred from their homeland to the kingdom of heaven, and that made them literally foreigners living in their own land, strangers in their own homes. I think this sounds a lot like our society today. The state is not actively persecuting Christians in the United States, thankfully. But Christianity is associated with being stupid, backwards, an idiot, being judgmental and angry, being a bigot, being a hater, right? We're ostracized, we're mocked openly sometimes for our faith in Christ. Sounds a lot like our society. Most of us sitting in this room are living right now in our homeland. We were born here in the United States. And yet we are living as exiles, as strangers in our own land because our primary citizenship and our first loyalty is to Christ. And that makes us literally foreigners in our own homes, exiles. In case you might think, isn't America a Christian nation? Don't we live in a Christian land? We actually don't. America is not a Christian nation anymore. Uh, I, I've shared this before. In 2021, uh, George Barna did a, a massive research study on uh, Christianity in the United States, and the results of that study showed that 94% of Americans do not have a functioning Christian faith. Only 6% of Americans have a functioning Christian faith, and among Americans in their 20s, it's only 2%. So 98% of Americans in their 20s have no functioning Christian faith, and 94% of Americans in general have no functioning Christian faith. We don't live in a Christian nation anymore. We as Christians are exiles in our own land. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant, but before we throw up our hands and cry about what we've lost, let's remember that not only are we exiles, we are elect exiles. That's what Peter says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, what does the word elect mean? It doesn't mean that God held an election and all the angels voted that we would be exiles, so we were elected to this position. No, the word elect simply means that God chose us. That's all it means, chosen by God. And there have been a lot of debates among Christian churches about what election is and and how election is related to our eternal salvation and and that process. And as much as those debates are interesting to, to think about, they don't really have anything at all to do with what Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter. When he uses the word elect, he's not referring to our eternal salvation. He's referring to the fact that we're exiles in our own homes, strangers in our own land. That's what he's talking about when he says you are elect. You were chosen by God to be an exile. God chose you for this. And we know that if God chose us for exile, then God has a plan. This must be part of God's plan. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we are too down on being an exile, let's also remember that as elect exiles, we're in good company because Jesus himself was an elect exile. Jesus was chosen by God before the foundations of the world were laid to come and seek and save and rescue the lost. 
And as that scripture uh, text that we read from John chapter 1 while we were singing says, Jesus came to his own people and his own people rejected him. They didn't receive him. He came to the world that he created. The world did not recognize him. He came to the Jews, his own chosen people. They said, no thanks, we don't want you. Right? Jesus was exiled in his own land. He was rejected by his own family. So he was chosen by God for this rejection. That rejection ultimately led to his crucifixion, which was the mechanism of our salvation. So when God chose Jesus to be exiled, it was for our salvation. When God chooses you and me to be exiled in our own land, it is for the salvation of the world. It is for the salvation of our neighbors and our family members. It's for a reason. We were chosen for this path. So the application from this first point is really this. Embrace exile. Embrace it. Don't fight against it. Don't throw up your hands and cry about, oh, we've lost so much in our society. No, just embrace who we are. We are elect exiles. Because once we see ourselves as exiles, now we can begin to do the work of an exile. Now we can begin to do the work that God has called us here to do. Instead of, uh, instead of fighting for a seat at the cultural table, we can invite unbelievers to have a seat at our kitchen tables because that's where cultural change happens it's not in the ballot box it's in the kitchen it's over coffee as we love our neighbors as we pray for them as we show them and share with them the love of christ once we recognize that, once we, once we stop trying to be the cultural influencers of the day and we just start living as exiles, loving our neighbors, everything will change. So who are we? We are elect exiles. Uh, why are we here? Peter answers that in verse 2. And the first thing he tells us is that we are here for sanctification. God chose us so that we could live for Jesus. See, in verse 2, he says, You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, what is that word, sanctification? Uh, it, it has two meanings in this context. First, it means set apart for God. To be sanctified means to be set apart for God. That's what Peter meant when he said, You're the sanctification of the Spirit for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? But what does that mean? That means to be set apart. Uh, he's referring back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when they would uh, set up the tabernacle or the temple and they were uh, setting apart the tongs and the bowls and the platters and the, the altars and all the things that were used in the temple to worship God and to offer sacrifices, what they would do is they would sprinkle blood of the, the blood of the sacrifice, they would sprinkle that blood on all of the things that were going to be used to make sacrifices to God. And once the blood of the sacrifice had been sprinkled on all of those things, they could only be used to worship God. They could not be used for anything else. Once you sprinkled the blood on the platter or the, the bowl where the meat would go to be sacrificed, you couldn't use that platter or bowl for anything else, for no other purpose. It was only to be used in the sacrifices that were made to God. If you did use it for something else, you had to throw it away and destroy it. 
because it had been set apart. It had been consecrated. It had been sanctified as set apart for God's purpose. Peter says that's what we have been, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, set apart for God. That's exactly what Ephesians 1.13 means. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. The moment that you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit stamped the image of Christ on your soul. You've been marked, set apart, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, consecrated, sanctified, set apart for God's purpose. God has chosen you and set you apart for himself. Uh, The second meaning of sanctification in these verses is the process of becoming like Jesus. That's what Peter meant when he said, You've been sanctified through the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience is a process. We have been set apart for God so that we can start to live like Jesus. We can become like Jesus. We can be obedient to Christ. Now, that is a process that happens over time. I did not get saved on Saturday and then woke up on Sunday morning completely perfect in every way. And now I am just like, no, that's not, I'm still being transformed into the image of Christ because sanctification means to become like Jesus throughout the rest of my life. That's what Peter means. So God chose us to be exiles so that we can live in obedience to Christ. We can be like Jesus in the world around us. The question is, am I living like that? Am I living like someone who has been set apart for God's purpose? Or am I still pursuing my own path in life? Uh, uh, An easy way to, to think about this, when I was a kid, I wanted to be everything. What do you want to be when you grow up, Andy? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> right? I want to be a, an archaeologist. I want to be a paleontologist. I want to be a historian. I, I want to be a, a, a wildlife biologist. You know, I, I wanted to be, I remember um, in sixth grade, we got these little newsletters uh, in our class every, every so often. And there was one little magazine, and it, and it had a story about uh, a doctor, a famous doctor named Ben Carson. And Dr. Carson, he was a neurosurgeon, and he had done this groundbreaking surgery. There were twins that were born that were conjoined at the back of the head. And he had done this surgery where he separated these conjoined twins, and they both survived. And I was reading that story as a sixth grader, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I want to be a neurosurgeon. Uh, You know, do you know the question that I never asked? What does God want me to be when I grow up? Why would I ask that? Maybe because we've been set apart for God's purpose, right? What does God want me to be? What does God want me to do when I retire? How many, are, are we thinking about that? Or, well, you know, what are your retirement plans? Oh, buy an RV, travel the country, you know, have a good time. Great. What does God want you to do? With retirement, What does God want you to do with your time? What career path does God want you to go? Because we've been set apart for God's purpose. Now, when you're set apart for God's purpose, you start asking those questions like that. That does not necessarily mean that you will become a full-time pastor or you'll be a missionary to Lithuania or something like that. God might call you to something like that. But for most people, God disperses us or scatters us across 
various sectors of society. God might disperse you to the HR department. God might disperse you to, uh, to the, the auto shop. God might disperse you to the classroom. God might disperse you to the sales department. Right? He, he might disperse you uh, to the laboratory. Uh, wherever it might be, God scatters you, disperses you. And what you have to remember is you're there for his purpose, not your own. You're there as an exile for Christ, to live in obedience to Christ as a teacher or as an engineer or as a designer or as a scientist or or whatever it might be, as a dad, as a mom, as a husband, as a wife, as a neighbor, as a friend. Whatever context that God has dispersed you into, you are there to be a minister and a missionary of the gospel of Christ an exile living in obedience to Christ, showing people around you what the love of Christ looks like. Because they're not going to understand the love of Christ unless we love them like Christ. They can watch all the Netflix documentaries about Easter that they want, but they will never understand the love of Christ unless we love them like Christ, unless we show them what it means and what it looks like to live in obedience to Jesus. That's the first part, uh, uh, the first answer to why are we here. The second answer to why are we here is that we are here because God, in his wisdom, chose us. God, with his perfect knowledge, picked you for his team. 1 Peter 1, 2, it says, you're, you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In God's perfect wisdom, he chose exactly who he needed, who he knew was ready for the task. And he chose you. And he chose me. He chose us. And then he set us apart for his special purpose. That purpose is living in obedience to Christ in front of the eyes of a watching world. Now, God knows that makes us strangers in our own homes. Because living like Christ means in many times, in many instances, living at odds with the way the world lives. But God has promised to multiply grace and peace to us and through us to show grace and peace to those around us, even those who disagree with us. And God has strategically dispersed his followers all throughout society. See, God's plan to build a society that honors him, that establishes justice, that loves one another and even loves its enemies, God's plan to build a society like that is the church. That's God's plan. It's the church. We are that society. The church is not a spiritual service provider. The church is a new society, a new humanity. It is the humanity that God intended when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is the society that God intended when he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, right? God, cre- God intended this society, this civilization, and when we rejected God, we built a, a different society that wasn't what God's plan was. And so God said, I'm establishing the church to be that new society, the society that was supposed to be. And our calling as the church, is not to force others to live the way we think they should. 
Our calling is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us, to live in obedience to God's word, to care for the vulnerable, to include the lonely, to welcome the outcast, to notice the overlooked, to protect the at-risk, and most of all, to teach them to follow Jesus. That's our calling. That's how God transforms a society. It is when the church does what the church is supposed to do. When we recognize that we are elect exiles, according to God's perfect knowledge, for the sanctification of living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. In order for this to work, though, in order for society to be transformed, all of us have to do that together. God chose you for his team. He chose you to be part of that. See, there are people in your life, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. There are people in your life that I will never have the opportunity to tell about Jesus. And that's okay. Because God sent you. God put you right there for a reason, for a purpose. You were elected for that reason. I don't have to tell them about Jesus because God sent you to do that. God sent you to love them. And you might say, I don't feel very equipped. I don't feel very qualified to do that. I'm not Billy Graham. God didn't send Billy Graham to your home or your neighborhood. God sent you there, right? And God always picks the unlikely hero. God always picks the underdog. God always picks the person who doesn't seem like they've got it all together, the person who who doesn't feel equipped for the task. And God says, I'll take that one, and I will work through them. This is how it's been throughout, uh, throughout the Bible, throughout Christian history. The first people to ever see Jesus resurrected were the women that followed him. Now, in that time period, women were not their own person. They were literally owned by their husbands. Women's testimony was not even considered valid in a court of law. Yet they were the first people to see Jesus resurrected. And not only that, they were the first people charged with the task of proclaiming the resurrection. The first person told, who, who was told to go and tell others about Jesus' resurrection was Mary Magdalene, who had been a prostitute and who had been demon-possessed until she met Jesus. So the very first person charged with preaching the gospel was a woman. In that society, it was the most unlikely person imaginable and yet that god said i'm choosing her i'm choosing them those are the people that i'm calling those are the people that i'm equipping those are the people that i'm empowering this is what paul wrote about in first corinthians 126 he said remember dear brothers and sisters that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when god called you instead god chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God didn't pick us for his team because we're smart and we're influencers and we're important and we have a big following and and I have a thousand people on Twitter or whatever. These No, God picked us for his team because... We're weak, we don't have it all together, we don't know it all, we don't know all the big theological words that you learn in seminary. And God said, no, those are the people I want. And watch what I will do through them. 
want to close by reading Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. These words should be really familiar to us. This is our charge given by Jesus himself. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's called us all to do this. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for those words. Thank you for helping us to see who we are and why we're here. And that you have chosen each one of us for your purpose and for your plan. And I'm excited about being part of your plan to redeem the world. Lord, I know that, I mean, if I'm honest, God, if I were looking at people to pick for, for my team to rescue the world, I would not have picked me. And I know that there are many people sitting here this morning who feel the same way. They wouldn't have picked Andy either. It's okay to joke when you pray. None of us would have picked ourselves, most likely, Lord. But you, in your perfect wisdom, you picked each one of us and you put each one of us exactly where you need us to be so that we can be who you've called us to be. And so I, I pray that, that as we are going out this week, literally social exiles in a society that has rejected Christ and that in many ways is actively seeking to undermine everything that the Bible says. As we go, as we go out into a world like that, Lord, would you rescue us from the sin of contempt? That we would not look at the unbelievers around us, people who vote differently or live differently or dress differently or view themselves differently than we do. That we would not look at them with contempt or disgust, but we would look at them with love and compassion. Like you did, Lord Jesus. You brought them into the the table, to the table with you, and you shared meals with them, and you loved them, and you showed them what the love of God looks like. And their hearts were changed and transformed. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would work through us in the same way. Rescue us from the sin of contempt. Help us to see ourselves as chosen exiles here to represent God and to be on mission for Christ. And I pray for opportunities for each person in this room sometime in the next week or two to have a conversation with a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, a friend who doesn't follow Jesus, and that we would begin to build those relationships. And Lord, I know that in the right time, you will give an opportunity to speak about Christ in the right way with the right heart as the relationship strengthens and grows and trust is formed. And I pray that we would be able to leverage that for the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.